Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And we have a guest with us today, Ayla. Say hello. Hello again. Hello, Ayla. Welcome back. Third time on the show. We are very excited to have you back again. Uh, I don't remember how long ago it was since we last chatted, but you were beginning to work on um, various kink sex statistic stuff and you said you would come back when you got some results and you have gotten some results so you are back oh no is that what i said (laughs) you you promised with a pinky (laughs) okay um okay okay this will okay we can we can do it okay we'll we'll figure something out we can make up stuff if we want no one's gonna check this standing offer nobody does i published my i don't think i've had a single person double check my raw data there's so much of it. Are you kidding me? You can't even open the file. That's a fair point. It did take me a while to figure out how to do that. <laughs> but uh, that that means good things because there is a huge set. Uh, I guess we should introduce people who don't know Ayla yet. Um, let's see. Ayla, you are, gosh, can, can we say you're a data scientist at this point? You know what? People will yell at you online if you do that. I'm good at being yelled at online. Ayla is our resident data scientist here. Oh, no. <laughs> they will yell at me if you do that also. Oh, okay. Don't yell at Ayla. People, people don't like it when I have any authority over anything. That seems dumb, though. You're, you're doing science at data, so yeah. I don't know who's gatekeeping the terms, but yeah, you've got quite the resume, but we've had you on a couple times before. I don't know if you want to give a quick overview of, hi, I'm Ayla. This is me. I'm Ayla. Enough said. <laughs> I don't know. I like take. I put my boobs on the internet, and then I ask people questions. Excellent. To great and great success at both uh, with both endeavors. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, a fine example of rationalists winning at life. Yeah, also. yeah. I know my niche. That's right. Before we jump into the data, it would be great to touch on this whole "what the hell is data science anyway" thing because you have a great post co- called "You Don't Need a Perfectly Random Sample for Useful Data." Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ! At least yeah. <laughs> I assume JFC stands for Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, it does. Okay, very great. Much. Which I was a very big fan of. We've recently on the podcast had a number of people. Um, Stephen, what was that? That uh... oh, Adam Mastrioni. Yes, thank you. Yeah, he wrote uh, Peer Review, The Failed Experiment, I think. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds good. I'll it was really good. That. Yeah, he's great. I have become disillusioned with what has become of the science process in, in the modern world. And he had quite a big thing written about it. And I don't think he kicked off a whole thing, but maybe. He's kind of like the face of it right now, where official science is kind of sucking. And it's good to have more people doing more things and just being open with all their stuff. We, we've done like... This is the third show kind of touching on that topic in the past six months. And I think this is a perfect example of the kind of science that we want to see more of, where people just do things and then share their conclusions and aren't such prissy little bitches about it, to put it in in my favorite terms. <laughs> I'm not sure you would uh, support those exact wordings. I, I think I'm in a mood to support this right now. Excellent. Yeah, I, I would say maybe crybaby nitpickers, you know, but... <laughs> It's Adam's main point with uh, the peer review process is that, A, no one actually checks data. So he said one person checked yours, which is more than most uh, published peer-reviewed studies get. They often reject things for silly reasons that gets held up for a long time. And, you know, then, of course, there's the publishing bias and stuff, too. But, like, you know, only positive things get published. But I, I could just imagine trying to submit this for review. I'm not an expert, but I imagine someone would look at, well, okay, you had 450,000 respondents. Well, there's no way we can verify that that's a real data, you know, red stamp, right? Um so what the fuck do they do for all the other shit? There's so many studies published about sex that come from online surveys. What is, how do they function? 
I'm just guessing that I'm not sure if they'd actually kick back on the number of respondents that you had, but I, I guess I'll, I'll drop a link in here for Adam's uh, blog post on it because he he's doing I think what what the cool new move is to do is just publish the stuff online in human readable format rather than in science journal jargon, and then people who actually want to learn the stuff can learn the stuff. As far as I can tell, the what they do uh, for those surveys is just go off credentials. Do, do you have a fancy name in a big university? Then we will accept it. Otherwise, uh, and not always, sometimes we're just going to make your life hard because we want to flex our dicks or something. Yeah, I noticed this recently. I was, I've mentioned this before, but I was invited onto a panel to talk about the IRB and it was an academic panel. And it was like me, like, I don't know, like 10 other people. And everybody else had like PhDs in a really long line of credentials. And my name on the list was just like a single word, Ayla, and, <laughs> which is very funny. But I didn't notice that like, that I, I was a little bit surprised by the sensation that like the person hosting this thing was taking a risk. Like what is changing about the system that they decided to allow on somebody without the proper badges on their uniform, you know? I think 50 years ago, if someone's talking at you about any sort of science related thing, this drug does this, or, you know, here's this finding from this result, you have no way of checking who they are other than, you know, saying, well, the university of so-and-so speaks for them. But now people are present online in, in a way that like, we can just basically credential check you or, you know, anyone could credential check anyone themselves. Well, and you don't even need the credentials anymore. You can actually just see the data and read the report because everything's right there online. Right. I, I guess by credentialing too, I didn't just mean like you know certifications and abbreviations after your name. I meant your your actual clout and your your seriousness and how how well you're regarded ah. within your industry. You know, like Yudkowsky doesn't have a, a PhD in computer science from Stanford or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But he's he's well regarded in this sort of stuff because he knows his shit and everyone knows that, right? Yeah. People seem to pay more attention to results. Yeah, I think that that's that might be the big change that's going on. Is that it's just easier to speak for yourself rather than need the the stamp. I think the replication crisis made shook a lot of people up too. Yeah, that too. For, for social science, for sure. I wonder if also part of it is you were you said you were on a panel at some event. Maybe just having people who are more able to be entertaining and relating to an audience. Like speaking in public is a skill on its own and you don't want a whole bunch of people who can't really talk well all up on stage boring the audience necessarily. (laughs) Wait, are you talking about this being pro or anti-academia? Well, why things are changing in some regards. Oh, like people are now more optimizing for communicability? Yes. That was one of the things Adam brought up too, that all this jargon is ridiculous. He just wrote what he was finding in, in regular words and it made it much more... I don't want to say popular, but much more read by his peers. I think I saw that there was, it was like a paper written by like, Hey, I'm going to write a paper, which I was a little mad about by the way. Cause I feel like I've been doing that on my blog for a while, but nobody gives a uh, shit. I know. But maybe it's just cause I'm not coming from academia. So nobody expects me to, it's like not framed as a paper. Yeah. I think that might be the thing is cause he's a PhD scientist. And he, so rather than like, since this just kept getting rejected, he's like, all right, you know what? I'll publish it for mass consumption instead. Screw you guys. I'll take my ball and go home. Mm-hmm. Because he left the institution to do it in this specific regard. Maybe that's what made that yeah, take that off more. Sense. But certainly, I don't think he had a sample size in the hundreds of thousands. So, yeah. yeah. Mine's over 600,000 now. It depends on how oh, you like, clean it. But how? Well, let's jump right into that since you brought it up. How do you clean it? Uh, I can check my code right now. I've, like, I've kind of like tweaked it over time. I like remove um inconsistent responses so like i have some like sex questions that are very similar and repeated so i remove people who answer inconsistently to that i remove people below a certain age 
like extremes of BMI, basically like looking for any questions where, where somebody might be tempted to like pick the most extreme on either end. Like for example, like age, you can enter whatever age you want. (laughs) Uh, And if somebody's going to be a troll, like they're probably not going to enter like 25. They're probably going to enter like 14 or 11. Or 99 (laughs) or whatever, like max number it'll take. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just like a whole bunch of tiny little things like this. Like you can aggregate the average score from the survey and then find the the strong outliers, like people who answered no to absolutely everything. Or, I mean, more realistically, it's yes to absolutely everything. And then you can cut off like the top end. I don't know. There's just like lots of little stuff. Cool. Which honestly, awesome. I've never actually like learned how to properly clean data. I just mostly looked at my data and thought, what would dumb data look like? And then I kind of tried <laughs> to kill it. So I, I might be making some basic mistakes, but. Everything that you said, I, I think makes sense to me. I mean, I'm not an expert, but it, I think uh, Scott Alexander calls it the lizard man constant, mm-hmm. where it was like, what was it? Five or 8% of people who voted for Obama in a phone survey also said they thought he was a lizard person. Yeah. And so he's like, all right, we can just disregard about that number of people when they answer polls. I keep meaning to write this blog post called The Lizard Man's Constant is Not 4%. Like, The Lizard mm-hmm. Man's Constant is like super influential by a lot of different factors. I've done a lot of testing for like what is The Lizard Man's Constant, like what affects it. I need to write, do a write up. See, now I want to know what affects it. Can we get a little sneak preview? My theory right now is that like, things that affect your sense of identity. So like, maybe I've said this before, I was talking to somebody recently, so stop me if you've heard it. Uh, Sometimes I do a set of polls where I ask people to complete a really obvious task. Like first I ask people, please vote for number two. And then the options are like one, two, three, four. And then the next question is, please please vote for like uh, four minus two. Um, and then you like slowly increase the difficulty of the math problem. And it's, it's not so difficult that like, it's like, it's still very simple. It's just basic. Like what is like two plus five minus eight divided by two, like, like very basic stuff like that. But the more complicated you make the problem, the more accurate the responses get. So, <laughs> Cause the trolls no longer find it fun. Right, because if you say please vote for two, everybody finds it hilarious to not vote for two. And if you say please vote for like four minus two, everybody because like nobody's like sacrificing ego by voting for the wrong thing. Like they're not they they have this like representation of themselves as somebody who's like smart and gets the right answer, and or like is like learning something about themselves in some way. And so if you have a question where you can like. F- validate your sense of self as something that's funny, then you're going to vote for the funny response, which is why like, the, like is Obama a lizard? Like it's obviously clearly like triggers this. Um, like it's, it's very funny to think that Obama is a lizard. And of course this is going to cause some people to click it. Like you have to be really careful to phrase questions in a way that like reduces the amount of like ego satisfaction that people get out of questions, uh, which reduces the lizard man's constant i remember reading that in in one of these posts that you said you've learned a lot over the years on how to phrase questions uh well that seem to compared to uh more academic surveys they don't know shit about phrasing things to avoid this kind of thing or a lot of them i mean like some academic surveys are using questions that came out of factor analysis which you don't have like a ton of control over you're like well uh this dumbly worded set of words is like the most predictive thing so i'm sorry everybody like when I did my everything survey, like the most predictive questions were just so bad. And then I put those into a survey to have people, to give people like personality results. 
And then people were complaining. They're like, this question, the terribly worded question. I'm like, I know, I'm sorry. Uh, but besides that, if you're not doing like a factor analysis survey, then yeah, uh, often the surveys are total shit. And they have no excuse. But I mostly learned how to do my question phrasing by just doing Twitter polls and then having people yell at me all the time. Yeah. You do a Twitter poll and it's just incredible the amount of ways people can misinterpret it. Well, I mean, their excuse is I have no idea what I'm doing, whereas you have put in thousands of hours into this figuring it out. That is true. That is one of the things I like about these surveys. They feel stronger just because you have been doing this for a long time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you've been doing Twitter surveys like for years and years, right? Uh, six years now since, since they released the Twitter poll option, which was six years ago. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wow. I only got on Twitter recently. For some reason, it never occurred to me that polls were not an option from the very beginning. Yeah, they weren't. I remember when they came out, I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask about fucking corpses. <laughs> I didn't even think it was, it was, I was, I wasn't using Twitter the same way I am now, like six years ago. Mm. Everything was a lot calmer. I don't think I had a community on Twitter at all six years ago. It was just oh. mostly like sex work advertising stuff. Like if you go really far back in my Twitter timeline, it starts to get kind of embarrassing. <laughs> That's probably true of everybody's Twitter timeline though. Yeah. All right. Well, going back to this, you don't need a random sample thing. You kind of make a point about small samples are okay as long as you aren't making super strong claims about them. You're just kind of presenting your data. Specifically, you said, you know, what if we don't know anything about clowns and we don't know if they like pies or anal sex? If we ask 10 clowns what they prefer and nine of them uh, say they prefer pies to anal sex, should we update on that? I assume you think that we should update on that. Yeah, probably a bit. Like, which universe are we in? Like, which universe is, is more likely? I agree. The weird thing about it is, is as I was thinking about this question, I tried to reverse it. And, I'd be, and I said, you know, I kind of just assume the stereotypical clown likes pies because they're always throwing them around. And I, I, I don't know their views on anal sex at all. But if I, if it were reversed and I asked 10 clowns in my neighborhood, do you like pies or anal sex? And nine of them said they prefer anal sex. At that point, would I update to clowns prefer anal sex or would I update to the clowns in my area must be really kinky uh, or, or all gay? I don't know. Like, um, yeah, maybe. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't update as quickly, though it would still be like, as you say, evidence. I would I would rethink my my stereotypes a little bit. Great. And like the thing is, the way I, per I, I view research is not that you need to like have one giant update. You just need to have like a stacking accumulation of tiny updates. Like if you get like a like a one percent update from like nine out of ten clowns prefer anal sex, and like another one percent update from like oh one day you discovered that you have like a higher gay population than normal. Like ideally, you just want to like aggregate them, and this is why like even tiny shitty amounts of data feel valuable to me because it could be like a very small drop in the pool of the way that you make predictions. Yeah, I think this is just good Bayesian reasoning. Like, if, if you ask a bunch of clowns and you get the same answer for whatever question, if it's, an, if it's a counterintuitive answer and it goes against your model, it's evidence against your model, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it, and if it goes with it, it's evidence for it. And so maybe, maybe one, you might update harder, you know, depending or something, but it's like, it's evidence regardless. I feel like I'm a very bad Bayesian because intuitively i think if i got the pies answer i would just be like okay that makes sense and accept it whereas if i got the anal sex answer i'd be like hold up a minute and you're not supposed to do that right i think you i think it makes sense too wait i don't understand like are like maybe most clowns are male and like a lot of males like anal sex uh and anal sex is rarer than pies it's harder to go out and buy <laughs> anal sex like right. maybe it's actually quite maybe it'd be weird if they actually preferred pies over anal sex 
Oh, that's true. Because who really gives a shit about pies? Yeah, they got pies. You know, that's the, that's their day job. You know, all day, every day is pies. In and out, right? so, God, if go I have to fuck another pie, pie, I'm going to yeah. throw up. Yeah. Exactly. But isn't this okay? So I I have to admit, I feel like I do Bayesian reasoning, but I don't feel like I like have like deeply grokked the equations or anything. Mm. Um, but so maybe I'm a dumbass. But isn't like taking your priors into account when you're like being deciding how much to be surprised by something also important. Like if you have knowledge about the way clowns work, you should be integrating that into your prediction of if they like anal sex or pies. Exactly. Yeah, that's very true. Like I don't know shit about the Bayesian equations either, aside from like kind of sorta, I know how they're supposed to work, but I can't do them. I, I was humiliated yesterday where I was tr- trying to explain Bayesian reasoning to my sister. And I tried to like do the graph with the, the boob cancer thing. And then I realized oh, yeah. I actually had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. Oh, that's just weird because like, I feel like I understand it, you know, but like if I have to draw it out, it just goes away. Yeah, that, that is one of the things I enjoy about doing this podcast is sometimes I have to try to explain something and then I realize how much how little I know. And it forces me to like, know things better. Like trying to teach something always is kind of humiliating. The other good thing about doing it in podcast form is that you can just edit it out. So no one knows yes. you couldn't explain it. Yeah, <laughs> you look like a genius the whole time. Oh, one thing I've been surprised by is how little other people deeply understand their fields. I mean, not always. I think rationals are really, really good at this. But outside of it, you ask somebody like, oh, how does this work? Uh, who's supposed to be an expert? Like a very basic example is I was actually my dermatologist. Sorry, I'm eating a cookie right now. Um, <laughs> I got stuck to the roof of my mouth. Hold on. <laughs> for some people, this uh, is going to be really hot. And for others, they're going to be like, oh, no, misophonia. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying my dermatologist, like, uh, she was doing, you know, light treatment because in the literature, you know, we're like red light frequencies, blue light that do different things to your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, wait, so shouldn't sunlight, doesn't sunlight contain these rays? Like it has a full broad spectrum. It should be beneficial in all ways, except for like minus the UV. But like besides the UV part, it should be actually like, quite helpful for your skin. And she just like couldn't answer. She like hadn't ever thought about this before. Like there's mm-hmm. no deep understanding about like, how light rays work and where they come from. And like, I, mean, I don't know either, but like she should have known because she, she's a dermatologist, but I don't know. This like sort of thing kind of happens a lot, especially with statistics too. I'm very surprised. People online are very confident about how wrong I am. And then I'm like, Oh, like maybe, you know, something. And then I go and ask them. And then it turns out they're a complete idiot with no <laughs> understanding of how statistics works. I'm like, how could you have this degree of confidence when you have this small amount of knowledge? And then they all are like, Oh, Ayla like can't take criticism. I'm like, well, if your criticism was fucking better then maybe I would take it. But your criticism <laughs> right. sucks ass, so I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. Have you found good criticism ever? Yeah. Usually usually it's less criticism and more like suggestions for how to improve. Because like so far I've been pretty careful with what I'm publishing, so there's not like a ton to criticize. Sometimes it'll be like graph presentations that I think are, are useful feedback. But a lot of it's like, okay, you need to learn this skill in order for the data to be more meaningful. And I've gotten a lot of that from people who know what they're talking about. And I think that they're correct. And I do, in fact, need to leave these skills. Oh, so there's kind of a direct inverse correlation between level of assholeness and usefulness of uh, criticism. Yeah, what do you know? Yeah, who, who'd have thunk it? <laughs> and I think there's also an inverse correlation between like ex- expertise in a, in a field and confidence that you're right all the time. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody's coming at you and they're, and they're super confident that you're wrong on something, it might just be a good a priori guess that they aren't an expert in that field. Or, you know, maybe maybe they're full of shit. Because um, people who know their stuff know that, the, you know, things are nuanced and complicated. It's weird that, like, there's sometimes I get, like, really confident instructions that I'm wrong from people who seem to be credential. 
And that's really weird to me. They might be mad at the, you're trying, you're trying to slip past the gatekeepers. I mean, in my opinion, credentials are mainly a sign that you were able to get the credential and not necessarily much yeah. else. I know, but they're, then they're then they, they're fucking annoying because then they're like, oh, I have a credential, you know, therefore, and you don't, like, har, har. Right? How many letters are after my name? I do think, I feel like I've been getting better. I have, I think there's a skill that a lot of rationalists have where you're sort of immune from social, like, reality. Like, there's a yeah. social reality thing where if a lot of people believe a thing, it becomes quite compelling to believe it in yourself, especially if it's, like, your peer group. And rationalists tend to be, like, really good at not falling for this. I do not think I have the skill. I think I'm a big like fall for social reality kind of person. This is why I'm like proud of myself for the stats thing. Like I'm very slowly starting to be able to be like, no, you all are the insane ones. Yeah. Cause like, like being faced with like a ton of people all the time online, like constantly telling me that I'm like bad with data. I don't know what I'm doing. makes me think like, well, I'm, I mean, I am new. Like I haven't been to school. Like maybe there is a bunch of stuff I'm really missing. And these people know, but now, now I'm starting to like grow confidence. Um, and, because I think like the urge to be like, no, you're right, comes from not from like truth finding, but from like a social thing. Like, mm. I don't want to like lose face or lose status by appearing arrogant in front of these people. Uh, so much of like my mental processing has been a fear of being perceived as arrogant. Yeah. But luckily being exposed to some arrogant rationalists has helped me with that. And then you slowly start to realize that these are the arrogant idiots that uh, don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> it feels very much like a grokking the nihil supernum um feeling that there oh there, there are no adults i guess the adults is me yeah the adults is me <laughs> yeah the, the the more i learn about like the inside of every so far every field i've ever in- encountered peripherally or directly it's like oh actually nobody knows what they're doing yeah it's it's kind of kind of startling your paralegal doing this paperwork you know they you know if you ask them they could be like hey full disclosure i have no i have no clue what i'm doing here right. um your your doctor the same thing it's just Everyone's kind of just winging it, and you feel confident in them. But yeah. going back into this, one of the things that you have said uh, multiple times in this post is that small sample sizes are okay as long as you aren't making big, confident claims. Which, as we covered, you know, maybe you just update a little bit on how clowns are or not. But your sample size is absolutely massive, and pretty much all your sample sizes are really big. So people have to object on other grounds. They got to object about things like internet data bad. Oh, yeah. I can feel myself getting triggered as you're talking right now. <laughs> it's it's funny because you're just like reporting what other people say. And I know you like, <laughs> I like, I know you don't believe it or anything, but my body is still like getting angry and just imagining that these people exist. Well, I mean, some of them do and it's unfortunate. They should stop existing. Well, they, they should change their Internet minds. Fucking samples. What do they think the majority of sex research is based on? Yeah, you, you just you just ask 20 college kids and then you know how, how humans work. <laughs> That was a large part of it that a lot of academic studies are complete shit because they have terrible sample sizes or or else, like you said, also just off the internet. Yeah, this is like pretty standard for sex research is like, say, you want to go study BDSM. So you go to a BDSM forum online on the internet to be clear. This We're talking about the internet and forum <laughs> on the internet. And then you go, you make an account and you go post on the forum. Can you guys take my survey? You post the link. And then maybe like, I don't know, 80 people take it. And then you go back and then you're like, this is this is how BDSM people think. And nobody seems to care that this is selected by people who are active on a forum for BDSM, to be clear. This is like the same issue with like pedophiles. When you want to do any research on pedophiles, you have to go to the offending ones. Like you have to go to like a rehab oh. center or something or like... 
people who have been registered as pedophiles. So you're only talking about the people who are offending. Most of the, I mean, like not all surveys are like this, but a lot of them are. It's just like so much of the sex stuff. I mean, to be fair, it's not like they're intentionally doing shitty stuff. You're, they're working with what they have. And like what you have is if you need to get good data from a very niche population, you have to go to the niche. And like, but the thing is like, once you have a niche community, that's like inherently filtered. So, I mean, I, I think like some data is better than no data. Like I think that them collecting this information is better than not doing it. But if you're comparing selection bias between this kind of sex research to like the the kink survey that I did, mine is doesn't suffer from this issue at all, and I think is vastly more reliable. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it hits a bright uh, yes. Everyone who says it's going to hit a niche audience or, or not, it everything's a niche audience. You know, you only got half a million respondents, right? You didn't get all <laughs> seven and a half billion of us. But like you mentioned, like you know, pedophile research talking with offenders. It's like I could just imagine someone going into a you know a prison to the and talking to two dozen pedophiles and saying, yeah, I talked to pedophiles, 100% of them uh, offend. And it's like, yeah, because you went to a prison. (laughs) Of of course, you know, you talk to offending ones there. That's where you'd find them. seems like there's less of a problem with that. Like, yeah, it's all necessarily filtered. You're doing the closest thing that's really reasonably possible to just grabbing randos off the street and having them answer questions for you. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think people just have like a really unrealistic idea of what, what good research looks like. I think people just kind of assume that established research must be doing properly randomized samples all the time. Like sometimes they are, but uh, a lot of times they're not. Well, and sometimes like it, it's really hard to do a random sample. It's really hard to get a hold of people. You know, if you're if you're going to say do a phone survey, very often you're calling like landlines, which means you're calling older people. If you're doing it at your university, it means you're doing it to college-aged people. It's also particularly hard to get a random sample when you're doing sex research because like there's a lot of self-filtering in the honesty that people have for sex questions specifically. Let's say hypothetically you have an institution and you put out ads and then you like manage to collect mostly a random sample of people IRL to come in and answer questions. Like they're going to probably filter their more extreme kinks if they're like in person where they know that they can be seen and identified. There's just like a lot of issues. This is just like one example, but there's a lot of issues with like getting accurate reporting out of random samples for sex specifically. Yeah, I took a few of these surveys over lot, or when we are preparing to do this podcast. And I got to say, if there was somebody sitting across from me in a room with a clipboard, <laughs> I don't know if I could have been as forthcoming. I would like to think that I would try to be, but there's just something about, you know, if you see their eyebrow quirk at one answer, it's like, okay, well, I'm censoring myself with the rest of these, right? Yeah, well, a lot of them are, uh, like, even if somebody's not there, even if you think that people like aren't going to see your answers, like, even if there's a small chance that people might be able to identify you, this can be a chilling effect, especially like, for example, if you are into pedophilia, like, mm-hmm. as one example, something or like things that are quite illegal. Like in my survey, I ask, uh, I don't use the word rape, but I basically asked if you raped anybody. And if there's like any fucking chance that your answers get leaked whatsoever, if it can be traced back to you, I think people are going to be like much more hesitant to answer. And to be fair, I think they're going to be hesitant to answer anyway. That's going to be hard to uh, eliminate 100%. I just think like anonymous survey where at the end you get information about yourself is like so far the best incentive for honest responses that I can think of right now. I like that you get information about yourself thing uh, that you appended there because you have commented on this a few times that you seem to get much better results when at the end there's some sort of like, hey, you most closely resemble this cartoon couple or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think this is like, so I think there's like pros and cons to this. I think the pros outweigh the cons, to be fair. But like the cons of this are like, I don't know if you've ever 
been a survey taker. When I was younger, I loved taking quizzes to find out information about myself. It's a very like stereotypical young female thing. Uh, sometimes I would deliberately enter false responses sort of to see how this impacted results. Um, oh. Or sometimes if you really want to view yourself in a certain light, you subconsciously like change the answers that you give. Um, and this like possibly is amplified by like getting a result at the end. Like if there's an outcome dependent on how you answer, then it might skew your results a little bit more. My prediction here is it doesn't skew it a lot, but I haven't like actually officially tested this. So I'm not totally sure. But the benefits are like, one, like what, what are all the motivations that people have to take surveys in research in general? Like they're getting paid, they do it for a grade and that's it. Like there's some sort of positive incentive or like you must be completing it in order to get a thing that you want. And, but like this is not aligned with like honesty at all. You could, you just need to answer the survey to get the reward. There's no way to check. But the thing that is aligned with honesty is information directly coming from the answers that you gave. Mm. And it's really hard to beat that. And then it also makes people want to share it with friends. Uh, and then it goes viral, which is good for sample size, et cetera. Yeah. Speaking of sharing with friends. So I, I got with my, which, which survey was this? It was one that said like your relationships are like this. I got oh, uh, yeah. Gomez, Gomez and Morticia Adams. I got 0.51. Oh, so that does oh, sound like a good what? thing. Right. So I was curious. Yeah. Cause I, I don't, I, the, the one at the top of the list was Lily and Marshall from how I met your mother, which I never saw, but that's 0.42. So I, as a data scientist, can you explain to me what, those numbers are 0.42 and 0.51. Oh, and I got a zero toxicity score. All right. For what it's worth, Lily and Marshall were also insanely wholesome and just super together. They, they're like the the yeah. more normie version of uh, Gomez and Morticia. Awesome. Well, my wife will appreciate the Morticia and Gomez. This is just like a basic distances calculation where I had people uh, rate fictional couples. So I did another survey where people like got a fictional couple and had to rate them a co- upon a couple of metrics. So each each fictional couple has a score assigned by raters. And then when you answer it, it's like an equation that figures out like which fictional character like is closest to your scores. Okay. So I'm closest to Lily Marshall and slightly further away from Gomez and Morticia. That's all right. Right on. Did we want to talk about some of the specific results like the women prefer more violent porn, which is surprising or? Yeah, uh, let's do it monogamous men and long-term relationships aren't doing too hot. <laughs> they are not. Those are both good. Let's start with the, the women perform more violent porn because that is uh, closer to the top of my notes. Uh, this is part of the kink survey, which at the time that you wrote the post had 481,000 responses. So I guess we should go with that because this is what that data is based off of. But yeah. you said you're over 600,000 at this point. Yeah. At the time, it was 167,000 cis men and 345,000 cis women in this, which I, first of all, was kind of surprised that there were that much of an imbalance in the women versus the men thing. But I guess, as you said, women like to take surveys more? Yeah, there's a strong preference there, yeah. Okay. And because people are going to, like, nitpick and dig into this, because the, the result is, at least I was surprised by it, you said that your sample set tended to skew younger, more female, more liberal, more middle class and queer and white than the world average, and also more Western and heavily US based. Yeah. Is this because uh, the large part of the respondents were from the TikTok, going viral on TikTok? Yep. My, my, yeah, my guess this is just basically reflecting TikTok demographics. Okay. The the weirdest thing I thought was that uh, they tended to be more conservative on average uh, than the rest of the population. Is that normal for TikTok? Uh, I believe they're more conservative on average than the other sources that I had who took the survey. Oh, okay. It, it was, that's my memory. Uh, like my Twitter respondents, uh, like people from FetLife, Reddit, like all of the other things were more liberal than TikTok. 
Ah, all right, I see. Not, not to say that the respondents here were more conservative than like the base, you know, than half of America or something. Yeah. Because I think at the top you said that on average your respondents are more liberal, but the TikTokers were the least liberal of the respondents, it sounds like. That's correct. Cool. That is interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that, but I, I'm not on TikTok either, so. I think this is good evidence for TikTok being like a slightly actually more random sample. Mm-hmm. Like my stuff is selected by maybe, you know, my exposure to my culture, like sex work or, you know, being a fucking weirdo. <laughs> um, and, and like TikTok is like, I think this is evidence that TikTok is much, much less uh, selection biased along these lines. The first thing that surprised me out of this is that 64% of women and 88% of men consume erotic content at least once a week. That goes against what I have been told about women for my entire life. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. Steven, were you surprised by this? Yeah, maybe this is where people's, mm, I don't want to say doubts, but their skepticism of like, hey, is this is this a real sample? Like That kind of joke of like, I don't know how Reagan won. I didn't. I don't know anyone who vote for, voted for him, right? Hmm. So everyone I know, this doesn't fit for, but I don't know that many people. I certainly don't know hundreds of thousands. Yeah, my guess is it's skewed slightly by being younger. I think younger people tend to have higher sex drives, mm. especially women. I also suspect it's skewed because like the phrase was, how often do you watch or read erotic content for the purposes of arousal? Mm-hmm. Which doesn't include porn. This could be like smutty romance novels, for example. Oh, women love romance novels. Yeah, fanfic, like any sort of... Like what's get what gets you aroused, basically. So I think this like makes a much wider umbrella than porn. I think we usually think of this as like, oh, watching porn, which is, of course is like heavily male skewed. Yeah, and I think that the other consideration too, you know, might be the fact that like if it does skew younger, it could be people who grew up with cell phones and stuff, right? So this this was just always available rather than something like they came across in their teens and twenties. Yeah. First of all, when I was a young woman, I was I was watching porn a couple times a week at least. I've dated a number of people like that, but I always thought that I was getting the outliers too, and maybe not. (laughs) But the reading porn makes a huge difference, I think, now that I think about that, because if you're trying to to be successful writing, one of the things you can do is write romance, because the majority of the words read in English are romance novel words, Mm -hmm. at least in fiction. It's, uh, It's just a huge market compared to every other fiction that is written. That's so cool. So then we get to the thing that, I mean, I know Stephen was surprised by it. I was surprised by it. I think most people are going to be surprised by it. I- I'm going to preamble this with almost any time I see you doing some sort of Twitter survey or something that touches on sexuality and women, before I even click on the results, I sort of have this private joke that only I am in on. But it's kind of a running gag that, aha, Ayla is about to demonstrate that women are subs yet again. And it, <laughs> and it never fails. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but one of the subset of questions was about violent porn. There were questions such as like how much porn that you watch is violent, how uh, much consent is optimal in your fantasies, how erotic is non-consent, how erotic is SNM. For all of these questions, the the positive answers, meaning you know either I'm slightly into it to I'm really into it, all of the positive answers were a minority. The majority of people still were like I'm not really into the violent stuff, but. Within those minorities, the percentage of women that were into it was higher than the percentage of men at every single category. Yeah. I think except for maybe brutality, but the rest of them, yeah. And I was super surprised by that. Yeah? I I mean, I had always been told that porn is violence against women and uh, it's terrible because of that. And men are, I don't know, violent rape monsters, you know. The typical things you hear when people tell you about why porn is terrible. And therefore, I assume women just don't like that stuff. Plus, I don't know, who likes violence being done to them? But 
but I was very wrong. We might still be uh, conflating porn and like erotic anything, which is what this is covering, right? That's true. There's a whole lot of ravaging romance novels mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, it's possible that visual depictions are, are more offensive to people than written ones. That's interesting. Probably because if it's written and you're painting the picture in your head, you get to paint it however you want. Yeah. And, you know, if it says, like, whatever, he grabbed her hair furiously in a picture or a video, that could be like, ow, that looks like it would hurt. But in your mind, you can be like, oh, okay, you know, furious for my definition of furious, which is nice. Yeah. Did you get a lot of Did you get a lot of pushback on this thing? I mean, some. There's this one annoying Twitter person who shall not be named who was very angry about it and said, of course, this is what you get from an internet survey. Mm. Yeah, the only real way to do this would be to knock on doors with a clipboard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, not, not to put whoever this, you know, Voldemort person is down too bad, but it's like, what is the actual alternative? You know, mail people a $20 bill and a survey and ask them to fill it out and mail it back, like at random. That's not going to work either. And also, if you want to hit yeah. half a million people, you're going to run into some serious financial constraints there. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny because like a lot of people who think that like you can't do research properly like are relying quite a lot on anecdotes in their personal life to make the actual decisions like well oh i know women who are horrified by this like therefore your survey must be wrong and like i just think people who are into this like are more ashamed of it and are less likely to communicate it to other people whereas people who are horrified by it are gonna shout it from the rooftops Mm. were you surprised by this result no. <laughs> no, I mean, this is, I've been researching the sex differences and fetishes for a long time, so this is very... At least six very years, very if not longer. Well, I mean, the, the sex research started a couple of years ago, maybe three or four. It's been like kind of off and because I started doing the surveys in 2014 or something, maybe mm-hmm. almost 10 years, but they were terrible to begin with. So I've done like a lot of low quality surveys for a long time, and some of those were sexual. Were you surprised by the early ones that gave this result? Yeah, I forget which one it was. It was one of the early ones. That was when I first saw that women are way more submissive than men are dominant. Mm-hmm. And then that started the whole slow burn towards like, wait, I need to do this. I need to find out what's going on. And then that just sort of kickstarted the the intensive sex research. But that was that was like the original big finding that confused me. Yeah. I shouldn't have been confused by it just because I knew some people in the kink community and one of their biggest complaints is that there's always not enough doms to go around. Yeah. So, so I should have suspected, but I, I was also kind of surprised by wh- why is there this mismatch between subs and doms? You'd think it'd even out after some time. Uh, yeah. There's a, it's, I need to get around to analyzing this, but there's one, one way, one theory I have is that it's a testosterone thing. And some people claim that testosterone is lowering in the population in general, which might be just making everybody more submissive. To, to test this, I wanted to see if uh, taking like uh, hormone replacement therapy for trans people affects how dominant and submissive they are. But this is hard to test because you're probably conflating a lot of like desire to adhere to the gender that you're transitioning to. So like mm-hmm. maybe if you start to take estrogen, you might start like interpreting your feelings as more submissive, even if they aren't because you're, like, you're really motivated to do so. So I was like, what if we measure change over time? Like if we can see the length of time that you're on a hormone effect is associated with your desire, because I guess I assume that the incentive to believe that, sh- that you are more submissive or something is going to be more time bound. Like it's mm-hmm. going to happen only the, the first beginning. I don't know. I'm not sure. Anyway, that's, that's just, I want to poke around that data to see if there's anything there. As you ease into your new identity and you're more secure in it, you don't feel like you have to necessarily embody all the, all the stereotypes as much. Yeah, maybe. It's, it's unclear. These are all a bunch of like kind of weird theories, but... No, that makes sense. I, I realized I got to straighten something out first, though. I, I said earlier that we were conflating 
porn and uh, erotica or erotic content. And then I was, I was like, well, you know, because I, I think I said, you should hold up a minute. I think you're conflating those two. And then I forgot, actually, you call out here in the, the post, Ayla, that one of the questions, you accidentally kind of swapped in the word porn for erotic content. So it wasn't just you and Yash. It was actually the the, the survey itself. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think this, this sounds right. Yeah. I, my hope is that I don't think it impacted the responses too much because like all of the questions leading up to it were like porn and erotic content, porn and erotic content. So my guess, my guess is by that point, people understood what I was asking, but. Yeah, that makes sense. And you you caveat that in here too. So that's why I like reading any sort of published scientific findings like this in communication, like human format, because you just get to say, here, here's what happened here. I think, you know, I think this, and it's not enough to burrow through the, again, the jargon. I have a, I don't know, just a, your personal opinion, not related to statistics at all question kind of here. Since there appears to be a lot of alpha in being Dom, if you are looking to sleep with the ladies, if there is someone who's like not a Dom, but willing to do the the fake it to, to make ladies happy thing. Is it possible to do like a fake it till you make it kind of thing? Or is that just a terrible idea? I mean, it depends on what make it means. It also depends on what fake it means. <laughs> like my theory about fetishes currently is that there's like two kinds of fetishes. There's like the ones that hit early and are extreme. And then the ones that are sort of conditioned and hit late. The classic example is like, you have a girlfriend who puts her hair up every time she gives you a blowjob. And like now when you see a girl put her hair up, you kind your penis kind of twitches a little bit. <laughs> um, like I wouldn't consider this to be like like a hardcore fetish or anything, but it's sort of like a conditioned response. Like you know that this sort of thing is associated with arousal, and I think like in this way, some people might be able to become dominant in the sense that like you learn that like when you you know hold your girlfriend down, she gets really wet. Then like now you start to associate these two things together. Mm. But I don't think it's ever going to be a hard fetish in the way that like it hits some people in extreme ways in childhood. Like the, that is just extremely hard to change. And I just am very pessimistic about the thought that you can change it. And it's also problematic because a lot of women, uh, women have varying preferences for the kinds of doms. There's lots of different varieties of dominance that women like. And some of them, I think, kind of are, are really compatible with the fake it till you make it dom and others aren't. Okay. As far as if make it means like what, start to actually enjoy it, Inyash? Yes. Then I got to think that the, uh, the positive reinforcement... Not not to be too behaviorist about it, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like the positive reinforcement would kick in to where I, I think Ayla put it really well with like the sometimes there's just the associations, right? Yeah. Um, if you if you played the same whatever sex playlist for three years, then next time you hear that song on the radio, you know, it's that kind of thing. Other times it's like, yeah, you know what? I really enjoy this. And it, every time I do this, it makes me really happy. Like, <laughs> I think that's almost the same thing. It, it, it expresses itself much the same way, right? Yeah. So good advice. Don't put top 40 songs in your sex playlist because you're probably going to be hearing those for the rest of your life. Or do. Or do. Yeah, I guess. Oh, my God. I, I, when I was escorting, I had like a, a single playlist I would play every time. And the playlist was timed so that it would help me know what the time was without looking at the clock. Because mm-hmm. it was the same song every time. So the same song played at like, you know, half an hour. Same song played at an hour into it. That sort of thing. But now that playlist is like <laughs> deeply associated with escorting. Like somebody, will, it'll be on somebody's Spotify, and then like <laughs> I get like flashbacks to you know opening the door to hundreds of men. <laughs> is are these good bad flashbacks or bad flashbacks? They're like they're medium. I mean, okay. sometimes it was nice, but it was always like the same song was playing as I opened the hotel room door, just like over and over and over again. Okay, so it's just. Yeah, I think it's just it's it's depends on how welcome that flashback is at the moment. It's it's, just, it's a little funny. It's, I I don't feel badly about it. Yeah. So there's a number of interesting implications that come out of this, but one of them being that 
when pornographic websites ban violent or non-consent categories, they're disproportionately reducing women's access to preferred porn, which I don't know. That was an awesome, I don't want to call it galaxy brain necessarily, but like one of those great flip the tables on the people thing where they're trying to help them. And you're like, actually, the women are the group you are fucking most by doing this. Yeah. Fucking softly and gently the way they don't like it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's so dumb. It's so fucking dumb. But like, who's going to fight for it, right? Like, this is one of those shit things that like, it doesn't look good. You're like, no, please leave that video up of like the man strangling the woman as she's crying. Like, you can't just, it's just a bad look, you know, it's hard to fight for. This is why we need people who they don't have their income tied to being employed by some public facing company that can just say, yeah, actually, you know, women do kind of like this thing a lot. And we shouldn't take it away because you're harming innocent adult consenting people yeah so dumb yeah and this this is also tied to like just like legislators and legislation like this is why you know punishments for criminals tend to trend upwards because mm. you know then if you if you say well i, I want to reduce sentences on whatever nonviolent drug offenses then your political opponents get to say oh look they're soft on crime you know doesn't that suck they're, that means your your neighborhood is going to fall apart likewise if someone were to be advocating for realistic sex children dolls for pedophiles uh mm. to be available for them that you know, that's just political suicide. And you could be like, look, it reduces rates of you know offense against humans by it could be you know some ninety percent or whatever. People yeah. wouldn't care, right? Right. You, you get quoted as being pro pedophile. People will just smear you through the mud just just because it's politically savvy, dude. Not because you're wrong. I mean, I really wish someone. It, obviously, this is not an actual campaign issue, but someone could just run a campaign ad saying, by voting against this, the senator has condemned one thousand children to being molested. You know. That'd be a good. That'd be a good counter ad. I like it. You should. You should. Uh, you should do some political campaign management. In <laughs> I. I would make not a single dime doing that. Nobody would hire me. Well, I mean, if if someone was trying to push something like that, and you're like, well, here, hit, slap back with this. I think that would work. I mean, I think that's just. You think about it for five minutes, and you come up with that. There's something else stopping people rather than the they didn't think of the uh, they didn't think of it. At least I hope. I mean, I didn't think of it, but I didn't think of, I didn't think about the issue that long. Yeah, um, I was looking at just uh, I think um, non-consent too. To me, it was just this seems like a funny trend with like a lot of survey data in general, and it's true ac- across all of these cis women, cis men, trans women, trans men. You you get a huge number at the bottom, and it, again, this would be true for I think most questions, but in this case, is non-consent not erotic? You get something like fifty, sixty percent, and then it's like two percent across the board for slightly, five percent for somewhat, moderate gets close to ten. And then very and extremely uh, get more. But I just like how all of them for all these questions slightly is always gets like the smallest response. Yeah, by modal. But this is one thing I also on my to-do list. I feel like whenever I do podcasts, I'm just like listing my to-do list. Hmm. But one of them is to check to see if like the bimodal trend uh, holds for things that aren't violent. Because this post was exploring like the violent categories or it's like things that are power struggles or something. And I don't know if like that is tends to be more bimodal than other kinds of fetishes. Yeah, I mean, I, it's there's no shortage of things to dig into. So I think there's lots of stuff you'll, you'll be able to investigate and publish or whatever post. I don't know if you if the data scientists yeah. will come, at, come to your house to pitchforks if I use the word publish, but they'll be able to, <laughs> to share going forward. It's like a lifetime of work in this data. It's just so much. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous how much time everything in the world takes. I I don't know. It, it doesn't sound like a very interesting observation, but just everything takes so much time. And it really annoys me that we have such a limited amount of hours in the day in which to do things. 
having a lot of energy is the world's biggest hack. I know. It's, I miss it. So I've been having such sleeping problems lately, which has been horrible. I just, most of the days I'm spending, I can't be productive because I just don't have any mental energy whatsoever. And then I feel bad about myself. Oh God. When did that start? Um, like, like a couple months ago. Is there anything in specific you can tie it to? Well, one for a while I was traveling and I think this was throwing off a lot of problems for me because like eating and the rhythm, sleeping rhythm was fucked. And then I started drinking these stupid fizzy drinks, which I think ended up disrupting my sleep because they were uh, aggravating my throat and causing congestion. And I didn't put it together for a long time because I would drink the fizzy drinks in the morning and then feel totally fine. And then at night it got bad. Huh. So, but eventually I figured out that that was the cause and I stopped, but I think I'm still recovering. Like my sleep is slowly improving. But I decided I have like a single shot of alcohol last night and I think that fucked my sleep really bad. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, that's my tale of woe. You said in you don't need a perfectly random sample post. You said that one of the things you would actually enjoy people to interrogate your data with is how representative is it? You say people who follow you tend to be more sex positive. Do you have any comparable data from less ALA focused sources so that we can get a sense of how much that's impacting the results? Do you have any comparable data from less ALA focused sources so that we can get a sense yeah, of how much I that's impacting? I do. I feel like I've published the, uh, there's I definitely sometimes publish the broken down by sources. I think I didn't in this particular post because like 99% of it came from TikTok. So it's like, why <laughs> the, the graphs you're seeing are basically TikTok graphs. So it's like, doesn't matter. Um, but I have, I have broken this down in other ones. I think women that follow me tend to be kinkier. Okay. That makes sense. But disproportionately kinkier compared to men that follow me. Like, like when I buy responses, when I buy like positively responses for like, they tend to be a little bit older and more conservative. Uh, they tend to be like much closer in the way that they rate uh, fetishes than, than my uh, followers. The effect is still there. It's just less strong. I had a question that didn't have anything to do with the post at all. But in one of your Twitter polls, you asked, are you more like devil or angel in, I don't know, sex stuff? I don't remember exactly what it was. And then at the Vibe Camp arranged marriage uh, sorting thing where everybody was split into like, what kind of relationship uh, are you looking for? One of the last sorting questions was like, devil or angel? Yeah. I'm not sure entirely what that meant. I interpreted more as, you know, like devil is more kinky vanilla and angel is more vanilla. In light of this post, I'm not sure if that was right. Are, is that what you were getting at? Or were you thinking more of these sort of violent dummy sort of thing? <laughs> I think it was intentionally meant to be quite vague. Okay. Like like one of the, uh, the vibe camp matching thing was a little bit meant to be kind of fun and not super stringent. Like we're not collecting data from it. Yeah, yeah. And and I I think that like the devil and angel thing gives people plausible deniability for how they answer. Cuz cuz we were like, "Oh, should we do like are you kinky or vanilla?" But then we're like, this may like introduce some sort of weird incentives into the group for if people can are like, I don't know, do you want to visibly identify to everybody else as kinky? And like what does kinky mean? Like some people might not I don't know. So like yeah. I, I enjoyed the the devil angel thing. It's like one, it's like a little bit lighthearted and fun. Like we're taking this as a kind of a goofy wink wink thing. So people don't feel like it's high pressure. Mm-hmm. And two, you get to sort of interpret it according to your own way. Uh, interestingly, most people were fake devil. I noticed that too, or at least on the poli side, I didn't really see how the mono side broke out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> poly people are so disproportionately kinky like it's like i just asked this guy on a date because i knew he was kinky and he was like well i'm monogamous and i was like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> a kinky person who's monogamous like okay does not compute <laughs> I, I asked him about it I'm so confused i still met up with him for lunch and a lot of it was like how how does that work what did he say about how it works like i think it's like kinky a little bit in like the trad kinky kind like 
sort of like master slave dynamics a little bit. Okay. Whereas there's like a lot of ownership and possessiveness as an element in the thing, which like he's reported didn't jive very well with the polyamory. It kind of feels like poly stuff just is kink on its own, at least in the popular imagination. Like you could be completely vanilla, but as long as you're poly, that counts as kinky. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting because like in one sense, like having someone other than you fuck your wife or something sounds like a kink, right? But it's like, oh no, we just do that. And so, you know, it's, it, I think you're right. It, it's conflated pretty easily. And I, I, I think I can imagine the overlap just because poly people are probably, well, I don't have to say probably, we have, we have experts here, you know, disproportionately like, I don't know, more sexually liberated, sex positive kind of thing. So they, I mean, I hate to reinforce the stereotype, but they do rate themselves as much more into group sex. Mm, well, I mean, I was going to say anyone who says they're not into group sex might be kind of weird, but maybe not. Dude, there's so many people who aren't in a group sex. To be fair, I'm not in a group sex anymore. I had too much of it. I'm fucking done with that shit. But <laughs> nice. still, I'm an outlier. There's a lot of people who don't report being into group sex. Actually, no, wait, I take that back. I like being gangbanged by men. That's, sorry. My like conception of group sex is usually like the male's fantasy version where it's like you and a uh, bunch of women. Okay, don't like yeah. That. Yeah, yeah. I like that, that that was like a second check of like, oh, hold on. No, if, 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 it's, if it's gangbang, that, that's not, that, that didn't fall in your category of group sex for a second. <laughs> yeah. like it's a group. There's sex happening. Yeah. <laughs> when I say people who say they're not into group sex are lying or something, I think because the fantasy is a lot different from the actual doing it. And mm. I, I agree that the actual doing it is quite different uh, and not necessarily something you'd be into once you tried it. But like... Most people who say they're not into group sex have like not ever done it. And I'm like, what What are you talking about? You you would totally love for four girls to go down on you. But I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of people don't like it because they imagine it as like too stressful to like track everybody. Mm. That's, that's exactly what I was going to say. That sounds, that sounds like a lot of pressure. Yeah. And people get off on like the, the direct one-on-one connection with somebody. Like you're like mind linking with them you're really like paying attention to each other closely. And like, this just kind of falls apart if there's more people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talking about kinky and poly people versus mono people, monogamous men in long-term relationships, apparently not doing too hot. No, they are not. Specifically found that after eight to 10 years, male satisfaction with their sex life drops to neutral. And after that, they're more and more dissatisfied by 16 years. The average person disagrees with the statement that my partner sexually fulfills me. Uh, whereas the women are more likely to report being sexually desired and satisfied in sex lives as they go on. I kind of have an idea of what's going on here, but what do you, what are you getting out of this? Men, the men aren't getting enough sex typically. Okay. You think it's specifically with their partner. They're not getting enough sex with. Yeah. I mean the most, mostly it seems like men want to have, like, I think I, I don't remember if I included the question in the write up, but the, it, it seems to be that like men are, are in fact interested in having sex with their partner more than their partner's interested in having sex with them. That was in this one. Yeah. It was? Okay, cool. I don't remember anything. Well, I mean, you write a lot of stuff. (laughs) Do women just want sex less as time goes on with their primary partner? My intuition was that men get bored with the same person over a long period of time, but maybe that is wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think both people do. But like, so like, let's say you're expected to be monogamous. Like, obviously, you want to have sex with other people. Like, I think Mm -hmm. most people want that. But like, men, I think, also want to have sex with their partner more than they're getting sex. And so, like, this combo makes the cheating really go up. If you're not getting enough sex at home, then, of course, they're going to go out and get it elsewhere. Yeah, you said by 22 years out, about two-fifths of men report cheating. Yeah. 
Which is, uh, people are like, oh, selection bias, but I don't think it's selection bias, okay? Because people say that, like, cheating rates in other studies are lower. It's, like, closer to 30% or something. But they're uh, measuring by age, not by length of relationship. And when I measure by age, my numbers come out pretty similar. Because relationships break up over time, in part due to this thing. Yeah, lots of people who are older are in younger relationships, and of course they haven't cheated yet. Yeah. Yeah, that seems like a like one of those things that you think... I'm kind of amazed that you get any pushback on, but I guess they just didn't actually read what you wrote because, you know, the numbers on these are like, you know, six to eight, eight to 10, you know, you're not, you're not counting age, <laughs> you're counting relationship length. Not not saying like anyone read that as age, but it's like, no, of course, like this is sure those things correlate. If you're in a monogamous relationship and you're 40, the, the odds that you're in a 10 plus year relationship might be higher than if you're 30. But, you know, you could also could have also met when you guys were both 38, you know, like, age of relationship is is probably the the better metric you also found that this doesn't this doesn't seem to be like just a sex thing it literally just makes people miserable on a direct emotional level and that higher ratings on sex satisfaction correlated positively with things like this relationship is good for me or we respect each other and we have compatible humor yeah it's hard to know which way the causality goes like maybe you just hate each other and then of course you don't want to fuck someone you hate or maybe you just your sex life is falling apart, but this is like damaging the bonds that you have that help you get through fights. Like who knows? Probably both. Yeah. It was very suggestive that all this started to break down around the seven-year mark, which was also around the time when a lot of people started having kids. And so for a while, it, it was it looked like the post was hinting at uh, possibly kids are causing this breakdown in sex and or relationship. But ultimately, you thought that was not the cause? I have no memory. I need to look at the posts. I have no memory of writing this, and I don't know what I was thinking. I think kids, this one here says that the amount of kids don't impact the, uh, the, the amount of cheating. Yeah. yeah, which was shocking to me. Why was that shocking? I totally thought that more kids were going to make more cheating happen. Because, uh, like, you, you know, more kids, more busy, like, less time for sex. I don't know. I guess also less time to look for mistresses. If you've got four kids at home, you're, you're busy, right? I suppose. I don't know. It feels like you have the same amount of time outside of the house, though. Or maybe you're more motivated to stay out. Were you expecting this sort of result when you were looking at this? Not the kids one. I mean, I need to find... What, was, what, did, I, what did I name this post again? Monogamous men, right? Monogamous men are... Oh, yeah, included zero. Okay, so I've, I was thinking, like, maybe it's the difference between no kids and some kids. But, like, the, the cheating rate doesn't seem to be that impacted by having no kids. It's, like, maybe a little more impacted. Like, what, males, it looks like it's, like, 33%. If you have one kid and then it's like 27% if you have no kids, which is like It's something. It's 5%. Yeah. But my, I think I remember my sample size not being huge here. This is just people in relationships 12 years or more and then measuring the amount of kids, which I think this ended up having low sample size in the bins. Oh, okay. Okay. Maybe people are thinking like, oh, the more you get to know each other's body, the more comfortable you get, like the more good your sex is. But I don't know. Everybody's just so unhappy with, like, not everybody. I'd say, like, a very big minority of people are unhappy in long-term relationships. What is your opinion on that? Should people have less long-term relationships? Is there anything to be done? Well, maybe. There's something where, like, um, oh, you know, if you if you stop being Christian, the divorce rates go up or something. I don't know if this is true. But I'm like, maybe you sh- these divorce rates should be going up. You get married to somebody when you're young and you expect that like the person you're going to be in 30 years is going to be still the person that wants to be with them. And this just seems unreasonable to me. And, like maybe it works out that way. And that would be awesome if it did. But like maybe it doesn't. And it seems fucked that you just like are committing 
people that you don't know to be with each other or else. So I think if you, it's just people who are valuing commitment above all things is the problem. Like you can value it, but like valuing it above happiness is the rough part. But it, it is hard though if people are have kids or you have like a life built together, then it's like really annoying to have to break up. Mm-hmm. Maybe wait until after the kids are out of the house or something. Yeah, I mean, I you know, just as the the token monogamous in a long term relationship, I'm happy. I have every reason to believe she's happy. You know, we're we're, we're open. We communicate. We've got a Morticia and Gomez, you know, style thing mm-hmm. going on. So, I mean, I, but it just, it sounds like I'm just saying, well, hey, you know, it's not, not everybody, uh, but I don't, I, I don't really have anything more stuff, substantive to put to it than that because I don't have large survey data, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's some couples that like, you're just famously getting along for 60 years, still incredibly happy with each yeah. other. Yeah. You'd love to see those people. Yeah. It's great if that happens. It's just, we don't know how to make it happen reliably. I, I want to ask the thing that really, I don't know, worries me about this, makes it feel insanely unfair to me, kind of, is that it seems that as men get older, they have a slightly easier time finding relationships, whereas as women get older, the they have the exact opposite problem. It's harder and harder for them. Wouldn't this sort of thing of like, as you grow apart after 20 years, you're like, okay, well, we're not good for each other. We'll split up and find new people. Doesn't that, that disproportionately fuck over women? Yeah, maybe. I mean... Is it true that women are having a harder time finding relationships? Because like, there's the age gap where like men want to date down and women want to date up. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know the degree that this impacts the mating pool. I don't know. I'm. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. No, I mean, I guess that's a good point because by the time there's a significant shortage of men due to them dying, then the women probably aren't really looking for relationships anymore either because they're within a few yeah, years but- of that too. Yeah, but I don't know if, like, the dying part, how like, much that impacts it. Because, like, what, there's, like, a gap of, like, a couple years between male and female lifespans. I'm not sure if a couple years is enough. And there's also the thing where, like, fewer amounts of men tend to reproduce with, like, larger amounts of women. Mm-hmm. Like, w- women are more likely to kind of overlap with other women in a way that men aren't able to overlap with other men. Which sort of, like, increases the ease that women have for dating. Like, you know, like men will fuck anything. But I feel like when men want to date younger, this means that you have to find a younger woman willing to date an older man. And that's only true for a certain extent of the age gap. Maybe I am uh, having a completely misplaced worries. Is there any advice you would give to uh, monogamous men in long-term relationships? Ugh, like divorce or hire an escort? I mean, if you're unhappy. If you're happy, then that's awesome. That's great. Like, And like 60% of you seem to be like mostly kind of happy. But if you're like the 40 percent then yeah you should escorts are great because they're like you don't have to cheat on your wife with like a co-worker you know it's mm-hmm. really messy you don't want to bring another woman to like try and get your resources and ask you to leave your wife that's terrible yeah and escorts are business-like they get tested for stis on average once every three months they don't want you to fall in love with them and they're going to not contact you once you leave so that's way better and you know exactly how many resources you're signing up for losing. This is not a potentially <laughs> exactly. un- unlimited commitment. I mean, to be clear, ideally, you should be communicating with your wife. Like, ideally, you should be getting your needs met through your wife. Clearly, this is obviously better. And, like, lying and violating your agreement is not great. Uh, but if, it, if it's coming down to, like, either you're going to divorce your wife or, like, either you're going to, like, see an escort on the side occasionally. Like, I can't really tell you which one's better. I love your post about escorts being the ER docs of relationships. Do you think if it was made legal, this would be good, like, completely above the board legal? This would be good or bad on net for, for escorts in the sex industry? I mean, 
I the escort friend who helps get me into this said that like the day that they make it legal in the U.S., she's going to quit. Yeah. Uh, so it's like I I want it to be legal because getting arrested for doing normal human things with your own goddamn body is fucking stupid. But also, when you legalize it, the prices are going to drop. Uh, yeah. Like the prices are much lower in places where it's legal. And then you've got to fill out W 2s and all that stuff. Yeah, George Carlin had a joke about why is it illegal to sell something that's perfectly perfectly legal to give away. right and uh i feel like that encapsulates it pretty well all right well we are right about bumping up the the time limit that we have you for uh is there anything that you wanted to to say or to leave us with that we have not touched on i'd like to marry somebody if you know anybody who is like good to marry then let me know that's about it damn okay just like anybody contact you as long as they think uh, they have to be good to marry do you have like age limits anything along those lines i mean it's like a gradient of preference Okay. peaking at maybe a couple years older than me and then like maybe tapering off around 10 15 years on either end with a long tail on the high end okay why do you want to get married i would like to be able to produce children if i want to okay i'm not a i'm not exactly a scientist but can't you do that already <laughs> yeah but it's really annoying <laughs> i know I, I i i should have made that more playful joke than i than it maybe came off as <laughs> Much easier with a uh, a full time committed dad in the mix. Totally, there was something I, you know. She mentioned this. I don't think it's in any of these posts though that we had here in the show notes. That about um, maybe it was something you tweeted Ayla something about like purely polyamorous people tend to have higher relationship uh, satisfaction, and purely monogamous people tend to have higher relationship satisfaction. But it's it's anyone who's like anywhere in the middle. Like oh, we're we're kind of poly, we're kind of not, or we're we're monogamous. Those people are all miserable. Uh, not all, but generally. Yeah, they have on average lower ratings. I like that. And what did you say about uh, why why you thought that was the case? Uh, a couple of theories, like one, like you have people who are monogamous but are trying to save a failing marriage or like trying to fix issues in their relationship, or like maybe we should try opening it up. Um, and so, like the motivation for becoming like a little bit of poly, and they don't go all the way. Obviously, they don't become hardcore poly. They're just like, oh, like maybe you get to we get to have a threesome or something. This is like correlated with having issues in the relationship might be one example. Another is like mismatch preferences. Maybe one person wants to be monogamous and one person wants to be really poly. So they meet in the middle. And so they, they rate like a middle rating. And then of course this mismatch stuff like creates a lot of problems. Yeah, Nobody's happy. Yeah. Um, another is like people who are in cultures that are less forgiving for polyamory might be less likely to put a high rating. Like even if you might organically become quite poly in a really polyamorous culture, you still like don't have the resources to be able to do this. Like you have to be in the closet. Uh, you can't let your work know there's the dating pool is quite small. And so if you're already under this amount of pressure, this might be uh, affecting your relationship to some degree. Like if you're trying to keep your relationship secret, like maybe this causes the relationship to suffer a bit more. So this is another potential reason. I kind of want to do a whole episode on the poly thing at some point because i i have a lot of i have a lot of feels about it in particular i really loved that whole thing you wrote about imagine if you were growing up in a culture where you saw maybe two movies your entire life portraying a monogamous relationship and even then it was kind of fucked up and ah it was it was beautiful i have copied it and saved it forever because it it, yeah it, it i was like this is exactly what I want to make all my monogamous friends read, especially the ones that are like, all poly Aww. relationships are fucked up. But And I don't yet know. you haven't sent me this link. 
<laughs> okay. Well, I was I was gonna see if you know maybe we could uh, bamboozle Layla into doing another episode in a couple months about the poly thing specifically, and then you would get to have to. I would force you to read the link as part of the research. Well, I'd read it. And to be clear, though, my, my position isn't that all poly relationships are fucked up. It's that no, I in know. my experience, everyone I know who's poly has tons of stress coming from that fact. Well, relationships can be stressful, but they can also be really fun and beautiful. Like totally, relationships can be stressful, and the more you have, the more. It seems like those those compound. That that's that's my that's the one sentence version of my my thoughts on it. I mean, monogamy is also really stressful, but we don't parse it as belonging to monogamy. Like, if you have mismatched sex drives, this causes us a whole lot of issues in monogamous relationships. But we don't hear this problem and then go, "Oh, that's such a monogamous stress," yeah. and we just think of it as a stress. Yeah. Whereas, like with polyamory, if there's like a problem that comes like as an emergent thing from like a poly structure. We, we say it's because of the polyamory. I think it's just like a really asymmetric like framing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. You, one just seems like, well, that's a natural problem. The other one's like, oh, well, you're doing this to yourself. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, okay, I, yeah. For me, monogamy would be so much more stressful. Like the, the kinds of impositions imposed on me would by having to like limit myself and my partner would be, that just seems like a way too much to handle. I don't know how people do it. <laughs> it seems like way too complicated. Yeah. <laughs> for me, poly is the simple thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, and to, you know, my vibe is just dudeism. Everyone do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anybody. My, yeah. For us, this this was just, you know, we're, we're kind of um, dudist kind of, I think, managed pretty well. <laughs> but just path of least resistance, you know, this seems like it doesn't have the, as many inputting stress factors. And both of us like low stress. It depends a lot on the people. And also, I had some uh, ideas about the whole the- <laughs> what you said. <laughs> what the fuck, Polly, people ages 45 plus with the, uh, the, late, the late stage poly sex bump. <laughs> Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> it's because if we people, older poly people are having the crazy amounts of sex with new people. I think it's because uh, the nerds bloom late and nerds tend to be disproportionately poly in the population. Like, I have a whole thing about it. But that's really late, though. Like, 45 plus? Yeah, but you, you take some time to, to find yourself. And then once you start getting really comfortable in the poly thing, that's when you open up and understand what you actually want and how to give other people what they actually want. And it starts being a, I don't know, a nice thing. I mean, I'm not 45 plus myself, but I have older friends and I see them just like, they they are on a rampage and it's kind of great. <laughs> and they're all people who are like, yeah, I, I turned, you know, 35 and I th- started reconsidering my life. And and like you said, you know, I've been in my with my partner for 15 years. We aren't entirely happy. And now they've actually figured out who they are when they don't have the social pressure of like, well, obviously everyone has to be in a monogamous relationship thing. Oh, I remembered one of the other things, because I'm still just quoting this whole thing that Inuyash mentioned from memory, which was that uh, one of the benefits of being whatever, strictly poly or strictly monogamous, is that if a relationship is having problems, you know exactly what to do. Whereas if you're strictly monogamous, it's like, yeah, we'll work this out. Like, it'll be fine. Whereas if you're strictly poly, it's like, all right, well, not worth the stress. I'm out. But if you're like, well, this is long term partner you know how do i juggle this do i do i dump the relationship do i stick with it that adds a lot of angst that you don't get on either side of the like extreme there all right if you're strictly poly you certainly don't say immediately this isn't worth the stress and i'm out you say i am committed to this partner in a poly relationship and so i'm not stressing about whether to be poly or not no no i didn't mean to i'm stressing about this relationship yeah you can just you can just shut it off oh you mean i'm out of the poly thing no, I mean, I'm out of the relationship thing. Polyamory and, and commitment are completely orthogonal. Yeah. My other relationships have nothing to do with how committed I am to my partner. And like the thought that I might just like drop my partner because it gets hard feels weird. 
All right. Well, in that case, I misunderstood my memory of Enosh quoting something that he read to me once. So I'll have to to just find the actual source. But (laughs) there is such a thing where, like, if you are poly, like, then you do more casual dating on the side, and those tend to be more transient. Like, I think this is true. Yeah. But when, but in my survey, I asked about primary partners specifically, and it seems to be roughly the same level of commitment as monogamous people. Oh, okay. Then yeah, I totally just. The relationships on average were slightly longer, but. That might be because they were a little bit older. And most of them were also rated as slightly higher in satisfaction terms. Yeah. That's the extreme poly. If you, As soon as you yes. step away from extreme poly, then it, like, it, gets, it turns into complete bullshit. <laughs> Which is rough because... Excuse me. Because most poly people aren't extreme poly. Yeah. Like, if you're just hanging out with a poly person, like, they're probably not going to be 100% full-blown poly, and then their relationship's going to be worse than yours if you're monogamous. So... That's the thing I was talking about, Stephen, where when people are just kind of slightly poly, they're always like, well, am I poly? Am I not? Should I duck out of this? Should I stay in? It, it makes it much harder to know what you want out of life and puts you into a lot of existential or relationship existential angst. Whereas if you're just full poly, you're like, I know this is what I want. I know this is how I'm always going to live my life. And so I am going to deal with it and find, find ways to work on it rather than like, oh, maybe I should just change how I do relationships entirely. I see. And so then that reverse holds true for for monogamy, where it's like, yeah, this is tough, but I'm not going to like reevaluate how I approach relationships with other people. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, I believe the comparison that Ayla made was to having a child where sometimes your child gets poop on the wall. And if you are slightly committed to having children, like you're slightly committed to being poly, you might be like, well, do I really want this kid? Maybe I should give it away. I'm not sure how I feel about this poop. Whereas if you're like, just fully committed to having a children, which just about everybody is. They're like, yeah, there's poop on the wall. That's kind of sucks. I'm going to, but I'm going to deal with it because I know that I am all in on having this kid. Fully committed to having kids. If you have kids. Right. Yeah. If we are wrapping up, I I do want to just say that like, I'm aware that you got some pushback on some of this for like, Oh, that's not real data or whatever. Screw all those. I mean, I I know you're, you're way ahead of me on this, but just my, I want to throw my support for screw all those nerds. Like again, most social psych data comes from, you know, interviewing college kids, you know, hungover 19 year olds who are given 20 <laughs> bucks to come, you know, 20 bucks in beer money to come in and fill out this survey. That's the majority of respondents for these kinds of things. You know, if you're, if you're getting tens, hundreds of thousands of respondents, I don't think anyone can complain about that. So they're just, they, they just don't, they just don't like what you're finding. I believe you also it's helpful to actually hear it there's like a weird psychological damage that can come like from having people say bad things even if you know they're not true but if you just like constantly hear them repeating it like it kind of gets under your skin a bit so it's just useful to explicitly hear the other things said even if you already know it oh good I'll make a habit of continuing to do that then I thank you (laughs) oh yeah I mean in general you know sometimes it's like hey you know I know you know this but it's nice to reaffirm once in a while I will start doing those more often You know, I think I just saw this recently. Yes, here it is in my notes. Uh, David Friedman said that he considers Code Interpreter, the the new AI thing for helping people do data science, to be decomposing the role of data scientist into helping people visualize and understand data versus serving as a barrier protecting civilians against misinterpreting the data and jumping to conclusions. And I assume that that is what those people have issues with, that obviously you are doing the thing where you help people visualize and understand the data. Like you cannot even slightly argue with that. But they're like, well, this data doesn't show what I would prefer to show. So obviously you aren't doing your job of protecting citizens from data that I consider harmful. Who's saying this? The people who think that you are are not a real data scientist. Oh, like you're predicting this is how they're going to have chat talk about chat GBT? 
I, I am predicting that this is what is going on in their heads when they say you're not a data oh. scientist because you're obviously doing the visualization and understanding part, but you're not protecting people from what they consider bad data, the data that is showing them things they do not want to see. So, yeah, yeah obviously it must be bad data and you're a bad data scientist. Yeah. yeah if, you, if you find something they don't like, come on. <laughs> or that just surprises them. Yeah. And they're like, well, do you have those letters after your name? No. Okay, then. Then I don't have to accept this. You know, one thing that's surprising to me is how little aggro-ness I've gotten about trans stuff. Because, like, a lot of my data, I include, like, the trans and cis respondents separately in a lot of these charts. And I just historically on Twitter, I've been used to, like, you you make one tiny slip-up, even if you're trying to do good, and then the trans people come and kill you. <laughs> so I'm, like, shocked that, like, nobody's come to kill me for the blog post so far. I think it's because you're being fair and you're just, you know, it. if you're, if you're polling people by what sex do they identify as or whatever it's if you just had the two categories then you're missing out on a pop- part of the population i i don't think you're doing anything objectionable maybe trans people have more respect for math <laughs> <laughs> not doing anything objectionable is not a, a sufficient defense against like the angry trans mobs and to be clear the, about, i think it's like a tiny subset of trans people that are insane online like there's a ton of trans people who are like fucking awesome and not insane but like the ones that are like the twitter frothing at the mouth ones those are terrible and they don't care if the thing that you're saying is reasonable yeah do you think it has made you a more confident person to have seen all these people being wrong about the data and realize that like it just in general not just in your data science life but in your personal life uh yeah i mean i think it's been a slow growth over a lot of different things like exposure to rationalists who are saying actually no that's wrong has been really helpful because i think i'm like quite susceptible to being swayed by the authority but yeah, I, it's definitely been a step in the right direction is like having people be confident and then me being like, wait a second, I actually know how that works. And I'm pretty sure you're wrong. Yeah. All right. Well, Ayla, thank you for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. We'll link everything. And um, if you want to come back and talk about anything else or dig into some more of this at some point, that'd be a lot of fun. And thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Steven, welcome to the last quarter of the show. Let's say it's going to be a quarter. The last segment. You betcha. There we go. I don't know why I feel the need to delimilate, deliminate them. What's the word? Delineate? Let's, yeah, for the last segment where we have actually three segments disguised together, but we're going to pretend they're all one, like three toddlers in a trench coat. <laughs> Sounds great to me. The first part of this segment is the feedback from the um, show on post-rationalism with Ariel. This comes from, would you believe it, the subreddit? There's actually still people on the subreddit. I'm, I'm happy for him. I, I haven't been on Reddit in over two months. Wow, this looks like an Eastern European name. If I were to use my Polish foo on this, I'd say it's Jojaya, Jojaya, Jojaya Black Arrow. Yeah, Zolzaya, if maybe. Your Polish foo is definitely better than mine, but if I just read it, yeah. My parents would be ashamed of me. They would say I'm dishonoring my ancestors with my pronunciations. What's funny, listeners, is that I've heard you speak Polish. It's like you can only under certain contexts. Yes. And it's like when when conversing with a Polish person, it's like it's right there ready to go, but you can't do it on command. It's not right there ready to go. It's right there ready to go as long as it's like talking about things in the kitchen or that I speak (laughs) frequently speak with my parents about. Like if I were to try to talk about something outside of those those circles, I'd I'd have no clue. I wonder what the uh, how you'd have the argument about tree falling in the forest in Polish. Slowly and with great 
difficulty, lots of stumbling. See, th- this is where I think like philosophy in different languages might be different because maybe acoustic vibrations and things you hear are just different set or different words in another language. That's possible. Yeah. I'm sure they'd have something equally stupid to argue about, though. Oh, oh, yeah, no doubt. I don't think one language has solved philosophy yet. So no, no. Well, maybe a baseline, but we haven't <laughs> <laughs> discovered a baseline yet. Not yet. This person from the subreddit has left us this feedback. Listening to this podcast, I feel like you're really missing why people don't identify as rationalists. And lists four points. First, rationalists explicitly talk about making your identity small, per Julia Galef. Check. Yep. Second, rats tend to oppose identity politics more than other groups. Check. I think that's true. I think that's like trendy to say. Everyone wants to say that right now, but I definitely agree with that. That has been a big part of the philosophy from the beginning. Third, rats take pride in in-group disagreement. I'm attempt- I was going to say check and then disagree with you if you said check just to prove the point. <laughs> but uh, yes, I-, I will agree with that one as well. And finally, rats and effective altruists are inherently positive labels. And the opposite label is a slur. So anyone with a modicum of modesty won't want to identify explicitly as a rationalist. Eh, that sounds like a jab. It sounds like somewhat true, though. You know, rationalists could be as opposed to instrumentalists or uh, empiricists or whatever, right? Like, it it's not actually opposed to those things because it's both of them, but... Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's not certainly not opposed to like irrationalists, but like, I mean, I guess what else would you call it? Yeah. Like an effective altruism. That's ju- that's actually just a description of what's on the bat. Like what's, what's in the tin, right? Yeah. But it, it does sound like you're saying, well, I'm either ineffective or not altruistic. I, I mean, I, I think so, but that's, that's totally a pill I'm just willing to swallow. Like my favorite example of this. And I think of it every time it must've been celebrity wheel of fortune or celebrity million who wants to be a millionaire or something. I think that's what it was. And Anderson Cooper was on there. This was like during the plague when, you know, everyone was sitting 10 feet apart and stuff. The charity that he was playing for was a charity that gave bulletproof vests to police dogs. Oh my God. And so here's the thing. I I love dogs. I love dogs a whole lot, probably more than most listeners. What percentage of dogs are police dogs? What percentage of police dogs get shot? How big of a problem are you actually solving by giving this charity $800,000? I'm totally fine just saying that's not effective altruism. This is a problem better solved by buying more dogs. Well, and I mean, there's all, you know, there's other ways to like make those dogs happier that I think would be better uses of that money too. That too. Even if you're going just for purely police dog happiness. Right. Even if you just care about the dogs. Is post-rationalist a a neutral label? Because you don't don't go post something unless you realize that thing sucks. (laughs) That's, That's fair. But I think we are also getting way too far off topic. All these do seem like reasons why specifically people would be disincentivized to use the label rationalist. And I think Black Arrow is correct here. Yeah. No, and that's totally fine. Like I said, I was just I was going to just fully own the first three. I think making your identity small is a virtue, not a vice. But I, I understand how that might be contrasted with like wanting to live in a vibrant and kind of um, like, I don't think it actually contrasts with living luminously, but maybe a flavor of luminous living. If you um, explicitly believe that making your identity small is a virtue, then you're not going to adopt an identity as a rationalist because that would be counter to the virtue of making your identity small. Mm. Likewise, if you oppose identity politics, you are not going to identify with any one group because then that's kind of identity politics-y. I think, I think my identity as a rationalist is a small identity, though. You know, some people make their identity like their their job or their career. You know, like doctors are super into being a doctor or something, right? It's a big part of who they are. Yes, but on the margin, the more rationalist they are, 
the more they're going to not want to go by that term up until they pass a certain critical threshold, in my opinion. Hey, yeah, I mean, that could be. Anyway, that's interesting feedback, and I liked that. Uh, it, yeah. It's interesting. I, like I said, I was only kind of hammering on it because I kind of fully own all of these, and except for the fourth one, which I think applies to literally any group ever. I don't think that applies for any sort of religion. Christian or Jewish doesn't imply somebody is... I mean, it implies they're non-Christian or non-Jewish, but that doesn't inherently come with bad um, connotations to it. Except for they're going to hell because they're living life incorrectly and worshiping the wrong god. Right, but the, the actual opposite word does not have a bad connotation. Similar to like Democrat and Republican, liberal, conservative. I don't know. Th- some those work, say yeah. Those the, bad the, words. The, the, the political ones work more, more for me than the religious ones. I was going to say like non-Christian. I mean, that would get you hammered to a cross back in the day, right? Or at least burnt eh, at a stake. It depends. The foreigners were usually fine being non-Christian. It'd be if you were part of the community and you betrayed your Christianity or something. Yeah. That, All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Anyway, that's cool feedback. I appreciate it, uh, Black Arrow. Yeah. All right. That that went on longer than I expected. So let us move right along to the less wrong post. Making an effort to make this truly a fourth of the episode. <laughs> it's fair enough. The first one being how an algorithm feels from the inside. I realized we, uh, we leaned into this. Must have been subconsciously last episode. I, we talked about like it must feel much more it, mu- it must feel more like network two, right? Yeah, and that, that's essentially this point. So to to remind listeners, network one was the pentagram shaped network around. Uh, you know, we can use blags and rubes again. Uh, you know, with the nodes being the color, the luminance, the interior, the texture, the shape, and the nodes lighting each other up as distinct things that, per piece of evidence coming in, would count towards like kind of blagness or rubeness, right? And every node is independent, but every node is connected to every other node. So they all influence each other. Right. He, he talks too about the, what computer scientists call big O notation, but the amount of computation required to like scale network one is huge. Mm-hmm. Whereas network two is really easy. It looks like a stick figure with one piece in the center called Bleg or Rube. And then the same nodes on the outside. All the nodes on the outside connect only to the central Bleg or Rube node. You know, it either glows or it doesn't glow. It's red or blue, whatever. The cool thing about that is, well, the cool the cool bug slash feature is that you can answer all the questions: what color is it, what shape is it, etc., and then still wonder, but is it a blag? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and importantly, the the thing in the middle, blagness and rudeness, isn't a thing that you can test or identify. Yes, it, it's a category we made up. Yeah, you can test right. and identify all the outside nodes, but the inside one has no objective, yes or no. Right. Fred here has no feathers. He's a biped. He's, oh, but look at that. He's only got nine fingers. Oh, man, is he a human? You know, I'm, I'm still wondering, even though he checks all the boxes, right? Except for the fingers one. Yeah. You know? So like, it, it's only it's only because our brain works like network two, that these are all that these are questions at all. Yep. He says that it feels like there's a leftover unanswered question, possibly even if you've answered every single note on the outside. And he used the, the example that actually connected with me a bit was the Pluto one. He says, we know where Pluto is, where it's going. We know its shape and its mass. Uh, he didn't mention that we know it's cleared out its orbit or it hasn't, but that's another one. But the question is, but is it a planet? And that one, that one still niggles at me a little bit sometimes late at night when I'm showering or whatever I do late at night. I insert Neil deGrasse Tyson, get over it or deal with it, whatever he said. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not a planet, but. But the thing is, it feels like it is, right? Mm-hmm. And it's because planet feels like it means something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like that he chose different examples. If you really want to feel aged, the top comment was 17 years old. Oh, wow. Or 16. 
you know, abortion is murder because it's evil to kill a poor defenseless baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that's actually not quite as illustrative an example as as Pluto, but it's like clearly you're pushing the wrong thing into the wrong category here, right? Yeah. The two things about this post that really stuck out to me when first reading, and it's interesting because now that I went back and reread this, all of it just felt like, yep, there's nothing new to see here. So I guess I've really internalized this. The idea of all of us are algorithms and how we see the world is how running our algorithm feels from the inside. What he says is when you look at network two, the one with the central node that has Blegarub, you're seeing an algorithm from the outside. But the way that neural network structure feels from the inside, if you yourself are a brain running that algorithm, is that even after you know every characteristic of the object, you still find yourself wondering, but is it a bleg or not? <laughs> and so he says, if you were mind constructed along the lines of network one, you wouldn't say it depends on how you define planet. You would just say, given that we know Pluto's orbit and shape and mass, there's no question left to ask. Or rather, that's how it would feel. It would feel like there's no question left. Uh, but the thing is, you know, it feels like there is a question left because, like I said, still bothers me. Just a tiny yeah, bit. I, I like it. And it, it is fun because I, I had the same experience rereading this, you know, because I read it not when it was new exactly. It would have been, I don't know, three years after if this came out in 2007, mm-hmm. um, give or take a year. But it, it does make me feel like I've grown a bit because now this feels intuitive. Yeah. Whereas back then it felt like, you know, profound and counter counterintuitive. It's still, I, I can't uh, shirk its profundity just because now I'm accustomed to it. But right. uh, it, now, it, now it feels like, oh, I get this. Not like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. I get that. Yeah. The other quote you pulled out is a nice way to uh, illustrate another version of this. Oh, the other one I pulled was, uh, you think, why look, this cup is green, not the picture in my visual cortex of this cup is green. We don't instinctively see our intuitions as intuitions. We just see them as the world. That to me, I, I, it reminds me, you know, that asking someone if they believe something or asking them if they think something is true is tantamount to the same thing. Yeah. Really, the question should always be, well, I believe it's true. Yes. Right. Or the yeah. answer should always be that. Speaking of quick side side thing. Mm-hmm. Uh I wish I'd gotten a chance to actually make that bet with you and Matt before uh, with you and or Matt for 50 bucks about the superconductors. Oh, OK. Because I would have won. You would have won. Yes. I'm bummed. But that, that was that was going to be a consolation prize. I wanted it to be true. Yeah. My, my consolation prize would have been 50 bucks. So was it 50 uh, bucks we were offering? Now we're too far aside. But you guys were going to record when I was out of town. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, uh, you know, I, I was going to send you a thing to read on the air. But I did say, I'll bet you guys 50 bucks that it's that turns out to either be a nothing burger or it turns out to be like impossible to scale. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, whether I would have accepted or not depends a lot on the the terms. Like I wouldn't accept one to one because I thought it was less than 50% chance it was going to be real. But like if you offered me 10 to one odds, absolutely, I take that. Yeah, you you didn't we didn't you didn't uh, accept a bet because we didn't get that far. But you know, that's neither here nor there. Dropped this post up early liked it his mic drop at the last uh, line here. And so everything you try to say about how native cognitive algorithm goes astray ends up being contrasted to their direct perception of the way things really are and discarded as obviously wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's a problem. Talking with people who haven't internalized these things yet. You know, next time the opportunity comes up, I will, I'll try to like just introduce this idea in the wild, point out that be like, look, we're arguing about something that actually isn't a thing. Interesting. Um, I, I, I wish that more people were inclined to have the argument about whether a tree falling in the forest made noise or not, but <laughs> uh, that only works now among hypothetical people like Albert and Barry in the next post. Yeah. 
Um, so the next post is disputing definitions. And honestly, I had almost nothing to pull out of this because it felt like just repeating everything we've already said before. All I pulled from it was dictionary editors are historians of usage, not legislators of language, which seemed like a neat little thing to pull out to remind ourselves. Yeah, no, totally. I think, uh, I mean, th- this was like a, a dialogue to bring the point home yeah. uh, of the last several posts. I do think this line points out that uh, Eliezer is a descriptivist rather than one of those dirty prescriptivists. Yes. And to, if I remember correctly, prescriptivists are people who say that language is, uh, well, and not just language, but the like definitions of terms are meant to be like, no, that is what we, that is how we are to talk about them. Not that's what we're talking about. Yes. Liam, come at me. Let's fight. Right. What, what he does here at the end of the, the dialogue between these two people arguing is that he, he imagines going back in time, first of all, uh, ask them about sound and auditory experience and uh, vibrational waves. And because neither of them have been salted yet, they both think, well, yeah, of course, those are different things, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, all right, well, let's call one of these this made up word. And one of these that made up word. And then then they have the conversation and it lasts two set two sentences of like, yeah, well, it makes it makes a fake word one, but not a fake word two. What's the next question? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess one of the things that I felt about this post was it felt very straw manny. I don't know, like, would this literally happen among normies? Because we can just not do that, right? Yeah, no, he, he's making it as uh, as farcical, I think, as him actually using a time machine in the in the dialogue to go back and solve the problem. One of them insults the other one, and it's like, okay, well, now his heels are dug in. Right. You're a niddle-wicking, falumping pickled plumber, you know? The, like, the implication is, like, as soon as both people have taken a position, no matter what the position is, they're, like, unwilling to back down or not even back down, to back up a step or two and say, all right, let's discuss what we're talking about. Because they literally do say, let's discuss what we're talking about. They come to these definitions, but then they keep fighting anyway, which just (laughs) seems dumb. Nobody would actually do that. And then when he comes and makes them talk about the, give those definitions to each other before they start arguing, then they're like, well, yeah, obviously there's no argument and they just don't get into it because there was no, I guess, emotional commitment at the front. I don't know. Have I been around people who are not like this so much that I've stopped thinking people are like this out in the real world? I don't know. You're talking to, you're asking the wrong person that question. But, <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> uh, to, to be fair, they didn't get emotionally immovable in their position until uh, insults were proffered and accepted. Yeah. Now they can't, now they can't back down without losing face, right? I guess people just need to be more chill and jokey about insults anyway like don't be such a whiny little crybaby about it so you got insulted whatever if he wanted to set the scene better these two people could have been having an argument in front of their respective colleagues or something right oh yeah or or in front of their lady friends right you know for some reason that there's something to lose by now losing this argument that someone has insulted you about right so dude came at me in front of my girl yeah again this this example about the people you know destroying a friendship over does a tree fall in the in the forest alone does it make sound that that's never going to happen but the the, uh the rest totally does right i I feel like this happens all the time especially on the internet yeah like if people conflate for example like the results of a um an implicit bias association test with uh being actually racist i am sometimes reminded how how bad the rest of the world is i don't know i we had a containment leak on uh on twitter where a a teapot tweet got out into the wider world and it just (laughs) reminded me how awful the rest of twitter is because it was just someone you know kind of earnest posting about his experience of life and it was like look at this shit heel man basically 
And uh, I was like, wow, I forgot how terrible the rest of things are. Well, that does sound awful. Um, yeah, it was bad. Yeah, I mean, I think I think with that, I mean, that, that basically sums these two up. Um, yeah. I Like I said, this isn't how this isn't exactly how real life works, but when you distill it down, I think it totally can be. Anyway, what, what have we got next? We've got uh, one of my favorites, uh, Feel the Meaning mm-hmm. and the Argument from Common Usage. Yes. So come back in two weeks for those. It's kind of funny, like just zooming out again to think of the, the overall breach of these posts as we go through like every section, a human's guide to words. Why did he spend presumably a month or two writing writing blog posts on how we use language? Because there's going to be arguments aplenty about, well, that's not intelligence, right? right. Yeah. Well, that, that's not that's not real knowledge or something. So if you can get all that out of the way before he even talks about AI, mm-hmm. people hopefully will once they, if they've read through these won't be they won't burn a lot of fuel having those dumb arguments since there are so many people who haven't read the sequences sadly uh, i've recently been seeing people saying you know what just stop using the word intelligence when talking about ai talk about capabilities that's what we really care about anyway it basically means the same thing and it stops people from getting hung up about whether these machines have a mystical human soul essence you know and then you can drop the artificial part too yeah yeah i mean they're real capabilities yep People talk about the shortcomings of ChatGPT, like, and again, that's actually not even the pinnacle of, of these technologies anymore, but it's still the most popular. They, they talk about it like it's some knockdown, like, oh, well, you know, you give it three, you know, three digit mu- numbers and it can't multiply them or whatever. <laughs> Bitch, can you multiply three digit numbers? <laughs> yeah, first of all, I can't without help. But, you know, it's a computer to be able to do it. But it's also like I can hold in my head or seven plus or minus two things at a time, right? Mm-hmm. If we're going to start throwing rocks, we're, we got to look at how glass our house is, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that is that is not a knockdown. That's not the knockdown that you think it is. You give this thing a calculator and it can do all the math you want. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. It's it's its capabilities are are a plenty. Uh, like I said, I, it was just kind of fun to think about why have these digressions on language. It, it makes it, it relates to this directly, right? Yeah, and it makes it easier for people who have read the sequences to talk amongst ourselves about things that are important when we don't have to substitute words and dumb things down for people who don't understand about how words work. Right. Well, we certainly, you know, at least in my experience, like on Discord or on the subreddit back in the day was like, I didn't see a lot of people burning fuel about definitional arguments, right? Mm -hmm. And yet that can be the entire thing that schisms communities. Mm -hmm. You know, that said, though, I do wonder, how does the the quantum physics thing tie into AI? Well, when we get to those sequences, we'll, uh, we'll contemplate that. Yes. All right. Today, for the last bit, instead of contemplating quantum physics, we are going to thank our patron who has helped us out this episode. We're going to contemplate the, the wisdom and... Generosity. Mm, generosity and just sheer awesomeness of Charlie Jackson. Charlie Jackson, thank you very much. All the way from the UK, I'm assuming, since there's a pound sign in front of that contribution amount. You are amazing and have helped us uh, talk about statistical significance and about how kinky ladies are, which I'm always interested in. So thank you, Charlie. Hope you found it valuable too. (laughs) (laughs) Heck yes. We, as always, appreciate the support so much. We'll be back in two weeks. We've got links to our Patreon in the episode description. Write a review on iTunes. Um, Come say hi on the... Apparently there's still a subreddit. Comment here or join the Discord and come say hi. One last thing that we are forgetting. What do you do if you like a lady but you haven't been out on a whole bunch of dates yet and you want her to to think you're... You're a swell dude. Um, I I can't quite think of an answer right off, man. You bring her a rose. Oh, that's a good one. And you was might... that a pun? Well, that was a pun. No, it's not a pun because we have a whole guild about roses. 
I heard a, a pun. Everyone heard it. No, there, on, that's on, not pun. On the record. It's the Guild of the Rose. Like, <laughs> <laughs> All right. How does building? How does bringing a Guild of the Rose to to the person you're trying to woo or to yourself? How does that? How does that impact you? Well, no, I would bring her an actual rose. Wow, I am really stretching this. I am so sorry, Stephen. I should have never started down this path. I shouldn't have of hammer. I shouldn't have used your your trigger word and said the word uh, pun. Oh um, God! I everything so, in my life is terrible right now. I'm so hungry. I would need to go eat. I'm hungry too. So let let me bring this home. They had a workshop in July on public speaking, which we are currently both failing at. Um, <laughs> but uh, if we had taken this course, we w- we might have done. We might have stammered on this part less. I did actually watch all of Matt's lectures on YouTube on decision theory. Oh yeah, how were they? They were great. Um, It made me really envious isn't the right word. What's envy for like the version of that where you can actually just go do it? Um, Um, Excited? Yeah, that's the term. Nice. It made me excited to actually like take the course proper and do these things, you know, because I I just listened to them while I was working. I didn't like stop and make decision trees, but now I know how and I will go back and do them. And that's just one thing. And it's like one of the most valuable skills in the world of like how to make decisions that are actually good for me. Yeah. You know, where I actually like the outcomes, Mm -hmm. right? We suggest that you do take the courses because you get more out of it. Uh, you get a cohort that you work through these things with. You get one-on-one support uh, from the people who made these videos. Guild of the Rose, pretty awesome organization, which is why we partner with them to try to get the word out to the people that this is a group of rationalists teaching rationality and helping all of us just to be better and bring the world more into being reasonable and thinking through things better and being more effective at living. Like, it's great. Yeah. I enjoyed the YouTube videos, but it, it's it's impossible to state overstate the value of the community. So yes, so working much. with people, it's you know anyone who has gone to the gym with some frequency knows that having a gym buddy makes all the difference in the world, right? Yep, guildofthe-rose.org or link in the show notes as always. That's right. Thanks for joining us, uh, Stephen. I'll see you in a bit. Sounds good, bud. See ya. Bye.